Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, Revelation 9. Revelation 9. If you've read ahead, you know that this is more like a Halloween text than a Christmas text. But we are continuing through Revelation. We'll be in Revelation this week and next. And then uh, the 19th and the 26th, we'll look at the Christmas story. But we're continuing on through Revelation 9. And before we head there, I want to say thank you to Pastor Ryan McDaniel. Did he not do a phenomenal job last week leading us in the study of God's Word? He is a, a gifted preacher, and I'm so grateful he's on our team. And uh, such a blessing to me last weekend. But it's good to be back. Revelation 9. Let's get a little context because we were out one week uh, as we jumped back in. You remember Revelation 1. We saw that vision of Christ. And you kind of get there at the end of the chapter, an outline of the book. Then you go into chapters 2 and 3. You see the seven letters to the seven churches. And we know those are real churches and real letters written to those real churches. But they also represent the church age. And then you come to Revelation chapter 4. And you see the glory of God in heaven. And you see 24 elders there with him. And those 24 elders represent who? The church, and there we are in the glory of God's presence, raptured out. And then you get to chapter 5, and you see that seven-sealed book. And John sees that book. It's the completion of God's purposes and God's plans in history. And John begins to weep because there's no one who's found worthy to open that book and break its seals. And then suddenly an angel says, John, there's no crying in heaven. Stop your crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome, and he is worthy. And he saw the lamb standing as if slain, that he overcame by the blood of a lamb, and Christ is worthy, and he takes the book in accordance with Psalm 2, ask of me. God says, and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your inheritance. And Christ takes the book and what happens? Judgment comes. And we saw in uh, chapter 6 the seals begin to be broken and we see six seals broken and judgment poured out. And then we got to chapter 7 and we saw what? An interlude. We said that as we move through chronologically, there'll be moments where God presses pause and we look more deeply at a group of people who are significant. And there we find a group of people who are very near and dear to the heart of God, a people that he's made promises to, the nation of Israel. And Israel lives again. And God takes this nation and he peels back the blinders and they look on him whom they have pierced. And you have 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And they proclaim the gospel in the midst of the tribulation period. And there's a great multitude who come to faith in Christ through their preaching. And then in chapter 8, we saw the, the seventh seal broken, and now the trumpets come forth, the trumpets of judgment. And we saw in chapter 8 the first four trumpets. And then at the end of chapter 8, he sees an eagle flying saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a warning. Judgment, judgment, judgment. All throughout 
the judgment of God in Revelation, you continue to see God extending forth the hand of mercy. He's warning them that are there in the midst of the tribulation, it's going to get worse. And there's still time to repent. And then in chapter 9, we see this fifth trumpet. The fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets we're going to get a lot more material on than we got the first four. And God's judgment are going to move from, from natural to supernatural. And as we see today, demonic. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Then we'll work our way through chapter 9. Father, as we come before your word, we know that this is a sacred moment. We gather today as a group of people, sinners saved by grace, strangers and aliens in a foreign land, with our citizenship in heaven. And as we sojourn on this earth, we need your wisdom. And we are delighted that you have spoken to us. You've revealed yourself to us in your word. And we know today that all scripture is God-breathed. This is your very voice to us. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be approved and equipped for every good work. God, teach us. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Reprove us. Correct us. Encourage us. And Lord, as always, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, Lord, I pray, move in their hearts. Reveal the truth of your word and the glory of your son, Jesus. And I pray that they'd be drawn to you today, born again by the spirit of God and the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. There's two phrases here that we see in verse 1 that demand uh, further investigation. The first is this star that has fallen from heaven. Who is this star fallen from heaven? The star fallen from heaven is Satan. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus sends out the 70 and they come back and they're encouraged. They're amazed. They say to Jesus, even the demons were subject to us. They're amazed at the power of God working through them in the midst of their preaching as they make disciples. And Jesus says to them, while you were out there preaching, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In other words, Jesus is saying, while you were out there preaching the freedom and the forgiveness of the gospel, I saw the beginning of the end of Satan. Now, what is Satan's story? And we know that he starts out bright and glorious. He's the leader of the angels, the most powerful and the beautiful of them all. And we don't know why. Maybe uh, he thought he was being cheated. Maybe he found out that the story wasn't about him. But pride entered his heart and he rebelled against God. And he took a third of the angels with him and the battle is on. 
And initially, he attacks the centerpiece of God's creation, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman. And he tempts them. And we know the story. They fall and they become children of the devil, sons and daughters of disobedience. And right there, God places a sentence on Satan. Genesis 3.15. That I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And he, one man, will crush your head and you will wound him on the heel. God says, I'm going to send somebody, Satan, and he will defeat you, but he'll be wounded in the transaction. And throughout the rest of the Bible, you see Satan's work and rule in this world. He, he destroys both Jew and Gentile. He's the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, until what? Until Jesus comes. We celebrated at Christmas. Jesus said it this way, he comes into the strong man's house and he binds him. Christ defeats Satan at Calvary. Jesus takes Satan's own instrument of death, the cross, and uses it against him to defeat him. And now, now there's a Normandy and Satan's children begin to be released through faith in Christ who defeated sin, Satan, and death in his life, death, and resurrection. But someday, Satan will be cast from the presence of God. That's what we see occurring right here in Revelation 9. And the world that has rejected Christ will experience their king, Satan himself. In other words, to a world that has rejected Christ, you want a king, now you got him. And it's Satan. And God will give the Satan the key to the bottomless pit and Satan will release his demons and the earth will experience torment the likes of which it has never known before. Until what? Until Christ comes. And Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years he is cast into the eternal lake of fire along with Antichrist, with the false prophet, and all those who have rejected Christ. So in the story of Satan, we see here, in Revelation 9, he is cast from heaven. And he is given the key to the bottomless pit. And the earth will experience hell on earth. The second question is, what is this bottomless pit? What is this about? And it would be easy to glance right over this, but I couldn't do it. We got to know, what is this bottomless pit about? And I love this. I do this. This may be more information than you want this morning. But I pray if you get nothing else, you would get this. The beauty of God's word is diversity. You have 40 different human authors. But one central theme. And it all draws together perfectly. So that Genesis 6, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude... And Revelation all come together in perfect harmony. And Revelation pulls it all together. So that's what I really want you to see. Now let's look at the nuts and bolts of it. What is this bottomless pit? I've got some scripture that I'm going to show you on the screen. You can jot these verses down. As I always say, do your own research. Don't take my word for it. One of my prayers, I'm uh, uh, John Buckman, I think he's over here. I'm doing uh, Every Man a Warrior. If, you don't, if, you've, if you're looking for a discipleship group, call me. Call John. We'll get you plugged in. And in that study, they talk about the learning period, pyramid. Uh, do you know the least effective form of learning? Lecture. 
It's what I do. Isn't that great? That was a very humbling thing, John. Um, I, I had a mentor, pastor, and we were talking about uh, the preaching sermons you've already preached. And uh, he said, listen, Chad, don't kid yourself. They don't remember what you preached last Sunday. Um, but uh, just bear with me as, as we walk through some of these passages, but study it on your own. That is my prayer, by the way, every week, is that what we would do here would give you a taste, just a taste of the beauty of God's word, and then you'd go home and say, I want to study it on my own. You know, you just get a little bit, and you say, I want to know it on my own. So look at these verses, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. It says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So what this says is that Jesus, after having died for our sins and accomplished the victory, in the spirit, he goes and makes an announcement to angels who are in prison. It says, made proclamation to the spirit. So this is some form of angelic being. And they are disobedient, and they're put in prison. So in other words, these are not good angels. In verse 20, it says, who were once disobedient when when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So you got four things. You've got spirits, some form of angelic being. They sinned. They did something that was disobedient. You've got, they were put in prison, and you've got the days of Noah. So those four things, spirits, sin, prison, Noah. Now look at 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. It'll also be on your screen. Jot it down. Look at it later. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. It says there, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness guess what we see again? We see angels. We see angels who sinned. We see hell, a darkness, pits of darkness. This is an abyss, a place from which they cannot escape. And what do we also see? Preserved Noah. You got the days of Noah. Angels sinned, prison hell, days of Noah. Then look at Jude. Jude verses six and seven. You'll see it on the screen. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what do we see? We see angels. But we also get another clue They did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. So we have a spirit with now a little more information. They somehow left their proper abode. And it says he is kept in eternal bonds. What do we see? We see prison. We've got angels, sin. They left their proper abode. Now you got prison. And then in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So it tells us something more about their sin, that they, they, something in the likeness of Sodom, that they went after strange flesh. So, so let's recap the clues one more time. We've got angels who left their proper abode. You've got sin, immorality, like Sodom and Gomorrah, strange flesh. They're imprisoned 
and it occurred during the days of Noah. Is there a place in Scripture where we find something like this occurring? Yes, there is. If you were here when we went through Genesis, you saw it then. This is amazing, folks. I've only been pastor here since 2015, so six years, I guess. And somehow I've managed to bring the Nephilim in three times. That's got to be a record, all right? And, and by the way, Pastor Bill is just scared to death of the Nephilim because they're tall and he's short. They scare him. He doesn't like to talk about them. We sent him a picture. He's got all frightened. I'm surprised he showed up for the second service. Here he is. But look at Genesis 6. Again, I love this because it pulls all of God's word together. The danger is when you see these things, they're so strange to us that you just cast them off as they're symbolic or, or we want to make them something that they're not. We take Scripture at face value, and and Scripture explains Scripture to us. And it all makes sense, and God ties it together. Look at Genesis 6. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he's also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came and the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So here we have the days of Noah. Man begins to multiply. You see the sons of God. Now, sons of God uh, up until Genesis 11 always refers to angels. After Genesis 11, sons of God refers to Israel. But prior, it always refers to angels. So you've got angels here that saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So these spirits somehow, as we learned about in Jude, they left their proper abode and they put on flesh and it appears here they took wives. And they produced a group of people called Nephilim. The Hebrew word is nephal. It means fallen. And immediately in verse 5, this brings about the judgment of God. By the way, we look at this and it seems so strange to us. The idea of angels or fallen angels possessing flesh and living among people. But you've got to remember, this is that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden. And remember, prior to the flood, Adam and Eve haven't been gone that long. Surely they talked about this. And you'll remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, what did God put at the entrance of the garden? Cherubim with flaming swords. So the angelic realm being around them, while it's strange to us, wouldn't have been that strange to them. And we know that the story of the Nephilim carried on because when the Israelites sent spies into the land, what do they say? They look like Nephilim. These are real people. So strange to us, but evidently not strange to them. But again, what do we see? We see the days of Noah. We see spirits. We see sinned, they abandoned proper abode, they went after strange flesh, and we see judgment. Let me give you the Jewish, uh, the traditional Jewish interpretation of this. Uh, in Genesis 6, remember, in Genesis 6, prior to the flood, we say this just, they're just now starting to see death. Up until the flood, people lived for thousands of years. And now they're all of a sudden beginning to see death. And death is evil and it's wicked. And you have these fallen angels who abandon their proper abode and they come to these people who are now beginning to see death and they offer an alternative means to eternal life. 
In other words, they say to these people that are seeing death, don't trust God. Don't die in faith. Trust us. And we will give you eternal life. And what does God say in Genesis 6? He says, no, sir. I will not strive. I will not abide with man forever. There is only one way to eternal life, and it comes through Jesus Christ, his son. And God locks them up in prison. And according to 1 Peter chapter 3, Jesus, having died for our sins and accomplished the victory, he goes immediately after that victory, presents himself to these angels who sought to offer eternal life apart from redemption in Jesus Christ. And Jesus goes to them and it says in the Hebrew, Nana Abubu, I won, you lost. And there's only one means to salvation, and it is through the redemption that Christ has provided. And they are locked up until when? Revelation 9. They're locked up until Revelation 9, and Satan is cast from heaven, and he goes to this pit. And notice what does it say? God gives him the key. Satan does nothing on his own. God allows him to have this key and to release these demons, to release the hounds. They're the worst of the worst. One of the commentators mentioned it would be like going to the worst federal penitentiaries and releasing the worst criminals and allowing them to perpetrate all kinds of evil on the earth. Multiply that by a million, and that's what you've got right here. These demons that have been locked up are now released, and the earth and the world experiences a time of torment and judgment, the likes of which we have never seen. Folks, you have hell on earth. Listen, the more I say this, the more I realize why so many people just take all of this as symbolic. Because it's a whole lot easier to take these things as symbolic. But it doesn't fit with Scripture. See, when it doesn't work with our mind, we don't throw out scripture. <laughs> we always go with God's word. And I love how God pulls it all together. Because if you're reading Genesis 6, you think, what happened to these people who were locked up? If you're reading 1 Peter, what happened to these folks? And guess what God does? He tells us in Revelation 9. It's beautiful how scripture works together. But back to Revelation 9. Now look in Revelation 9, verse 2. Satan opened the bottomless pit. And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke out of the pit. So the smoke that, that billows out of this pit is, is so dark and it's so thick to an extent that the air is darkened by the smoke. It's just kind of like a panic-inducing blackness that fills the sky. And in verse 4, then out of the smoke come locusts upon the earth. And power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power and they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the, uh, the seal of God on their foreheads. And even here in God's judgment, we see mercy. Uh, God says to these locusts, they cannot attack any green thing. They cannot eat. And that's what locusts do. We see in the Middle East, they still to this day have swarms of locusts. And as they move into an area, they'll eat and devour every green thing. But in this situation, God says to these locusts, they will not devour the green things. They will attack who? They will attack people. Except for who? God's people. 
God limits them. And these people, again, I've had some people email me. In the midst of the tribulation, there are people that come to know Christ. And they are sealed. And God protects them. And so these locusts do not attack them. Um, They can't touch God's people. God puts limitations on them. And then look at verses 5 through 6. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. They weren't allowed to kill anyone. Um, Certainly, these demons could have killed. That We know humans can kill humans, and demons are more powerful than humans. They could have killed. And that's exactly what they would have done had God said, you can't do that. You can go this far, but not that far. It's similar to Job. You can do whatever you want to him, but you can't take his life. And they are permitted to torment people, but not to take their life. And there's judgment even in mercy. There's mercy even in judgment. Because they're only allowed to do this for five months. Why five months? Because God continues. This is amazing to me. Even in judgment, he continues to extend a hand of mercy and grace. You can repent. You can come to Christ and know my salvation. And these people, look at it further, it says, um, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. In those days, men will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. In other words, it gets so bad. They recognize there's no hope. They recognize there's no future. And it's so bad that they just pray. They just hope that they could end it all, that they could end their life, and yet they're not permitted to. They want to die, but they can't. And in verse 7, folks, look at this. This is absolutely amazing. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. They are armed for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. In other words, they're victorious, at least for this season. And their faces were like the faces of men. These are intelligent, rational beings. Look on, it gets worse. They had hair like the hair of women and their teeth like the teeth of lions. Folks, you talk about a scary picture. Hollywood can't recreate this. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. They had no vulnerabilities. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing into battle. You ever heard those people tell, talk about when they hear a tornado coming? It sounds like a train barreling down the tracks. Can you imagine at this moment, these locusts, these awful beings are bearing down on people and it sounds like hundreds if not thousands of chariots with horses rushing down upon them. And in verse 10, uh, they have tails like scorpions and and stings. And in their tails is their their power to hurt men for five months. These demonic spirits, they, they not only just inflict physical pain, but spiritual and psychological pain. And John is doing the best he can to describe the absolute horror of what he sees. It's more frightening than we can get our minds around. We don't have anything to compare this to. And in verse 11, they have a king. They have as king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name is in Hebrew, Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Both of these names mean destroyer. What did Jesus say? Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan has one aim, 
one goal, and that is to, to destroy the lives and the souls of individuals. So what do we do with this? I came to this, and I'm reading this, and I'm studying this. What do you do with this scary picture? I want to make it as plain as I possibly can uh, to you uh, this morning. The fact of the matter is, everyone in this room, everybody here, everybody watching online, Reach Church of Soto, venue down the hall, every one of us, every person in this world, we are going in one of two directions. Every person. One of two directions, and we're following one of two leaders. Today, you are either following Jesus on a path. Now, you may step off that path from time to time and do some knuckleheaded things, but ultimately, that path, Jesus' path, is leading where? To eternal life. Or you are following Satan on a path to destruction. Now, people who are on that path, can they occasionally step off and do some good things here or there? Do sinners and unbelievers sometimes do some good? Yeah, but ultimately, the path they're on leads to what? It leads to destruction. You're either following Christ to heaven or you're following Satan to hell. There's no spiritual Switzerland. There's no neutral ground here. One or two directions. I want you to look at this. Ephesians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen in front of you or you can look it up or turn to it. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said it this way, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's not working, and the sons of disobedience. You know what Paul says here? All of us are born sinners. We're born sinners. You don't believe me? Have kids. Volunteer in the nursery for a week. We're born sinners. We're dead spiritually. We're spiritually bankrupt. We're dead. We're disobedient. And guess what else Paul says? Prior to faith in Christ, every one of us were following Satan. That's what he says. The prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience. Now, now nobody says it that way. Nobody says, yeah, I'm following. Well, maybe some. But most don't say, I'm following Satan. But listen to me today. There's only two paths and if you are following the path of the world, who do you think is leading the world in that direction? That's the spiritual reality this morning. And what we deserve is the full weight of God's judgment. It says in verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Children of wrath. All that any of us deserved was death and hell. That's what we had earned. Today, there's so much talk of entitlement, what you deserve. Listen to me today. All that any of us deserved was death and hell. That's what we had earned. But then come the greatest two words in all of God's word. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. 
and he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you know Christ today, it's not because you were smarter than everybody else and you figured it out. If you know Christ today, it's because, not because you found God, because God found you. The hound of heaven came after you. And there came a moment when you didn't think your way into salvation. You didn't wander or investigate your way into salvation. No, God came and by the power of his spirit, he pulled back the blinders of your eyes and you saw the depth of your sin. You saw the beauty of Jesus and you ran to him and through faith in Christ and the spirit of God and the word of God, you were born again. For by grace you've been saved. And some of you today, God is working in your heart right now. I believe this with all my heart. Some of you in this room, some of you I'm watching online, Reach Church, the venue, God is working in your heart right now. He's drawing you to himself. He's convicting you of sin. He's showing you the depth of your sinfulness and the danger of the path you are on. I believe right now there's somebody listening in this room or watching right now and you are incredibly uncomfortable and it is taking every bit of restraint in your body right now to not run and hit those doors and leave because you are experiencing what we like to call conviction and you're beginning to see the danger of the path that you're on But more than this, I pray that you're seeing the beauty of God's love. Because scripture tells us it's not judgment that leads us to repentance. It's what? It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And so maybe today, as you're seeing the destruction of the path that you're on and the danger of the path you're on, more than this, you're seeing the depth of God's love demonstrated in Christ who died on the cross for your sins. And if that is you today, we challenge you. I plead with you today, repent, turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Know his salvation, his freedom, his forgiveness, his peace, his security. The beauty of this as you read it, my favorite part in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Paul says he's raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, are we right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places? No, then what's he talking about? No, this is the best part. This is the part that gets me every time. Our salvation is so secure that we can talk about it as if it's already occurred. Not because we're that good, but because God is that thorough. He's done all the work, and we place our faith in him, and it's as good as done. Uh, As I was writing that and studying that, I, I re, was reminded of a, uh, it was a documentary on comparative religion. And it caught my eye because this British guy, you know, in his tweed jacket with his pipe, he was in, he'd gone to the Midwest. I can't remember exactly where, but he'd gone to a Midwest, kind of a small country church with the kind of a country preacher. And this preacher was preaching. And uh, as the preacher was preaching, they kind of gave you a clip, and the preacher asked, do you know today, do you know, if you uh, raise your hand, if you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven, and all these people just raise their hands. And uh, this British guy kind of 
goes to him, and he's leaning up against the building with his pipe, and he says, uh, the odd thing, this is my best British accent, all right, this is the best I can do. <laughs> he says, the odd thing about these people is that they seem like it's almost arrogance that when he asked them if they know that they're saved, they raised their hand with such certainty. They, they talk about judgment as if it's already occurred. And he's right. I heard that and I thought, he gets it. Because judgment day has already occurred for those of us who have trusted in Christ. The judgment that we deserve was poured out on Christ and through faith in him, we are saved. Past, present, and future. And so that we can say today that we're raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. My prayer is that for everybody who's listening or watching today, you would have that kind of certainty. Through faith in Christ, not your good deeds, you would have that kind of certainty. But listen to me today. On the flip side of this, if you reject Christ, if you turn away from Christ, just know this, because I don't want to pull the bait and switch on you here. It would be easy to pat you on the back and send you on the way, but that wouldn't be truthful or loving. So just know this today. You can reject Christ. He doesn't force himself on anybody. He's a kind Savior. Even as we saw, he knocks on the door. But if you reject him, if you turn away, just know this. There's a day coming. There's a day coming when, as the old saying goes, you will pay the piper. If you do not want Christ as your king, you will have your king. And you will experience the reign of Satan. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You will pay your wage. Scripture says there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end leads to destruction. One day, those who have rejected Christ, snubbed their nose at him, turned away from him, they will experience the full weight of his judgment. And for many, Revelation 9 will become reality. And that motivates me to plead with you and pray for you that you would trust Christ. Do we have a hymn this morning? It's hard to find hymns on judgment and locusts. Um, there's not many out there. The Nephilim, they don't even have a hymn on Nephilim. I don't know. So I hope you don't mind this morning, but I went a little outside the box. And uh, I'm draw upon a song that uh, I thought it was an old song. Um, thought it was a really old song, but I come to find out it's a fairly modern song written by a country musician. It was inspired uh, by a Hank Williams song called The Devil's Train. Maybe you've heard this. There's a long black train coming down the line. 
feeding on the souls that are lost and crying. Rails of sin, only evil remains. Watch out, brother, for that long black train. Look to the heavens, you can look to the skies. You'll find redemption staring back into your eyes. There's protection. And there's peace the same, burning your ticket for that long black train. There's an engineer on that long black train making you wonder if the ride is worth the pain. He's just awaiting for your heart to say, let me ride on that long black train. Well, I can hear the whistle from a mile away. It sounds so good, but I must stay away. The train is a beauty making everybody stare. But its only destination is the middle of nowhere. I should have put Bill on the spot on this one this morning. I love the finish, the chorus. But there's victory in the Lord, I say. Victory in the Lord. Cling to the Father and his holy name. And don't go riding on that long black train. The devil is driving that long black train. Let's pray together. Father, I believe there's spiritual warfare taking place in this room right now over the soul's the lost souls of men and women who are watching online in this room in DeSoto. We've all been there. We had a moment where we felt you tugging on our heart. We finally got downwind of ourselves and we smelt our own stench. then quickly our eyes were lifted and we saw Jesus. God, I pray by your spirit right now, draw men and women to yourself. We plead with you, spirit, in the hearts of those we love and we know are not saved. They've not trusted in you. God, right now, by your power, we ask that you draw them. Overwhelm them, God, with your love so that they're only response is to run to you. God, for those of us that do know you, oh Lord, I pray that seeing what is to come would burden our hearts for lost souls around us. God, may we pray more because we know that in all that we can do, we can't save somebody. We can say all the right words. We can do all the right things. But unless you move, God, nobody's going to be saved. And so we pray that we would bend our knees more often and plead with those who don't know you to trust in Christ. And God, help us as we proclaim this gospel message, help us to live holy lives. God, don't let us do anything that would bring shame upon the cross or hinder anybody from coming to faith in Jesus. 
Help us to live holy and pure lives for your glory and for the salvation of those who do not know you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we give you opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors right here at the front. Um, Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe you've been through our membership uh, class and you've shared your story and you'd like to come and make your membership public this morning. We would love to receive you. Uh, Maybe you just want to pray with the pastor this morning. This is your time. Know know today you'll never, never regret obeying Jesus. You respond as we sing.